Well, good morning. It is good to see you who are on campus and to be seen by those of you who are online and those who watch us later on demand. Today we're into the second of our series called Essentials. And in this second week, we're going to be looking at an essential for what it means to live the Christian life. And, and this particular one is something that I, I'll be honest with you, it, I think it's misunderstood. Uh, a lot of people misunderstand what we mean when we use the term that we're going to focus on today. Uh, the, the term is love. Now, now, to show you what I'm talking about, I love it when God just drops the opening sermon illustration in my lap in the middle of life. Because this week I was talking with our Eastside Kids team about how uh, things had gone last week in their Valentine emphasis uh, during our uh, kids' service at 9 o'clock and kids' men in the treehouse. And uh, the, uh, the team was telling me that, oh, yes, it went very well, and, and the children really understood it. They understood it completely. In fact, at the end of the lesson, the, the teacher said to the children, now, now that we know that Jesus loves us, what are we going to do? And one little five-year-old raised his hand, and he said, because Jesus loves me, I'm going to make love to the entire world. And we're like, oh, okay. <laughs> Mom and dad went, mm, you know, on that one. But uh, you know what? I, I think when we use the term love in our world, there are a lot of people who kind of pick up the wrong idea about love. Maybe they see it in terms of sexuality. Or maybe they just see it in terms of warm fuzzies and emotions. I think that's what Tina Turner and Ike Turner, uh, who was at that time her husband, uh, had in mind when they wrote a song that, uh, that actually she wrote about the breakup of their marriage called, uh, What's Love Got to Do With It? Got to do with it. What's love, did you hear that line? But a secondhand emotion. What's love got to do with it? Got to do with it. Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? You know, I, I, I'm not sure Ms. Turner was entirely understanding of the concept of love. And I'm pretty sure that it was locked into the, the amorous feelings that we have for someone in whom, with whom we fall in love. But there's, if you've read your Scripture, if you know anything about the Bible, you know there's a, there's a much deeper level of love than that. There's a much deeper level of love than the sexual love. There's a, there's a, a love that, that is even deeper than the love that you have for a sibling, for a brother or a sister or a family member. In fact, it's the kind of love that, that Jesus told Nicodemus about when Nicodemus came to him by night and asked him what he had to do to become a follower, to, to really be a part of the kingdom of God. And, and Nicodemus, as he's asking the question, got an answer he didn't expect. Because here's what Jesus said to him. You, you know this. It's in John chapter 3, verse 16. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. See, there's something more about love than simply emotion. There's something more about love than, than simply the connection between two people. No, no there's, a, there's a deeper level of love. And as the early church was trying to figure out how to relate to, to people who were different than they were, as they were trying to figure out how to make this church exist with Gentiles and Jewish background people with the Hebrew heritage, as they were trying to figure out what it meant to really follow Jesus in their world, they, they settled on something that was quite honestly essential. In fact, I think it's more essential even now in the 21st century than it was in the first century. 
although in every century, this concept is essential. It's essential for us to understand that the love of God is a different kind of love, and it calls us into a deeper love. It calls us into a place where, where we are willing to listen, and we are willing to love, and we are willing to sacrifice. Because you see, that's, that's, what, that's what happened with Jesus. That's what John 3.16 is so powerful. It's not just because Jesus showed up and told the world, hey, you know what? God loves you. No, it's, it's because Jesus showed up and he sacrificed his life to demonstrate how much he loved us. The Apostle Paul, who we've been talking about, wrote about it to a church in Romans when he said, very seldom, you know, this is, this is what love is. Love is when someone will sacrifice themselves for someone else. And very seldom would someone die for a righteous man. But here's how we know how much Jesus loved us. He died for us while we were still sinners, while we were still away from God. It's that kind of understanding about the magnitude of the love of God that is essential for the church to grab. And in the first century, it was, it was something that was essential as the Jewish and Hebrew background people met together with the Gentiles who had come to know Jesus by faith. And in Jerusalem in that first century, as they gathered together, they, they came together to a place where they, would, where they would be able to figure out how do we coexist? How do we love each other? How do we become the body of Christ? And there's a, there's a scene in that meeting. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 15. It's a very powerful scene. It's a scene in which, in which a word is spoken by a man of depth and experience. The man's name is James. Now, this is not James, the son of thunder, with his brother John. No, no that James had already, been, had already been martyred for his faith. Now, this is the James, this is the James who was the brother of Jesus. You see, Jesus had younger brothers and younger sisters. He was the firstborn, obviously from the immaculate conception, birth of 100% divine, 100% God. He was different than anybody else, but, but Mary and Joseph had other children. The Scriptures tell us about them in several places. And one of them was his brother James. And the reason we know about them and the reason this passage I'm going to read for you in a moment is so powerful is because James, like many people, didn't fully understand who his brother was. Not for a long time in his life. In fact, if you read through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, you'll find places where James and his brothers and, and his mom would actually try to talk Jesus out of stuff, where they'd come to, to say, hey, Jesus, if you keep talking like this, <laughs> they're going to kill you. Hey, hey, Jesus, if you keep doing this, people are saying you're crazy, Jesus. Just come on back home to Nazareth. Just come on back to the carpenter shop with us. But if you keep reading, you discover that, that there was a time when now James James became a believer. James, James became a believer. And, and what's so powerful to me is that, that his brother, he grew up in the house. I, mean, I want you to think, if you, if, you, if you have brothers and sisters, I want you to think about growing up in a house with somebody who becomes the Savior of the world. <laughs> I mean, you, you know them for all the other things in their life. Right? You're, I mean, you're so close to them, and that's the way James was. And yet James, the Scriptures tell us, when Jesus died and he was resurrected and he began to appear to his disciples, he also appeared to James and his other brothers and sisters. 
We know that because in the very first chapter of the book of Acts, when the early church is gathered in the upper room, it's not just the 12 apostles. It's not just the 120 disciples. Luke makes a very significant point to tell us that James, the, the brothers, and, and the mother of Jesus, the family of Jesus, was in that room on Pentecost. And throughout the book of Acts, we discover that, that over, the, over the years, as the church is growing, James, the brother of Jesus, becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Because Peter and, and the other disciples, they're, they're out sharing the gospel with people. But, but the church in Jerusalem needed someone, someone who knew Jesus very, very well. They needed that someone to be in their life. And that someone now has an opportunity, not just to talk about love, not just to quote verses about love, not just to say, hey, you know, my brother was the savior of the world and he loved the world so much, but to actually show them how to love. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at what James does in that, in that room where all these people are gathered that we talked about last week, where Peter had stood up and talked about it's by the grace of Jesus Christ that we are saved, not by our own works. And we're going to pick up in verse 12 of Acts chapter 15, exactly where we left off last week. And here's what I want you to do today. I want you to follow with me and pick up exactly what it means to really love people the way Jesus calls us to love people. Listen in verse 12 of Acts chapter 15. And all the assembly fell silent after Peter had told them what he told them. And they listened then to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done with them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Simeon, that was Simon's Hebrew name. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of humanity may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them that they abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. I don't know if you've ever met anybody like James or not. I've been privileged to know a few. Uh, across the years of my life, I've had the privilege of serving on some, some boards for Christian organizations with some pretty amazing people. And in all of those settings, there's, there's always been a James. There's, there's been someone like this. You, you know, those of you who are older, you'll remember a television commercial called E.F. Hutton for a, a, a brokerage firm. And it would say, when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. And that's what was going on with James. I've been in some of those organizations where there's 30 or 40 or 50 minutes of discussion or an hour or two of discussion, and, and, and then suddenly everybody kind of turns just almost instinctively to this one person, and we all just value that person's wisdom and their knowledge and their insight, and we, and we turn and we listen to them. Uh, a couple of summers ago, I was uh, honored to be a part of the life celebration at the death of my mentor, James Earl Massey, 
up in Detroit. And uh, there were a number of us on the platform. I think that day there were 15 speakers uh, in, 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 in the service. One of them was um, Dr. Timothy George, who was uh, uh, retired just recently as dean of uh, uh, Beeson Divinity School at Sanford University in Alabama, and had served for a couple of decades as theological editor at Christianity Today. And as Dr. George was sharing that, that day, um, he made this comment. He said, you know, I, I served with James Earl Massey on the board of Christianity Today for two decades. And in all of those times that I served with him, there would be these moments when we would have deep discussions about whatever the issue was, and we'd all have vibrant discussion and, and sometimes just argument. But then, but then there would be a moment, and we would turn, and we would wait for to hear what James Earl Massey had to say. And suddenly, it just all made sense. When he spoke, suddenly we understood what we were supposed to do. And, and I don't know if it's something about the name James or, or just the Spirit of God at work in people over 2,000 years, but, but that's what was going on in the Jerusalem council. Peter had talked. Paul Barnabas had talked. People had argued about it. They had much debate we talked about last week. It was a discussion. Yeah, it was an argument. That's what it really was. And as they're doing that, then suddenly James, the brother of Jesus, speaks. And I love what he does, because what he does is he lays out in life action form the theology that we all try to teach, the teaching that we think would make a difference. Look at it and, and listen at it again. All of the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. What James is saying is this. Hey, look, we've just heard Peter talk about the fact that over a decade ago, God took him to Cornelius' house. And God showed him that among Gentiles, people who are not Hebrews or people who are not Pharisees, people who are not followers of the law of Moses, God has a people there too. And we now know that. And in doing this, here's what, here's what James is saying. James is saying, look, when the love of God impacts your life, it moves you. And it moves you, it moves you from me to we. It moves you from a me life, a life where it's all about me and mine and what I want to do, to a, to a we life. Now, for those of you who are taking notes, I want to make sure you write this down correctly. It's a me, M-E life to a we, W-E, not a W-E-E life. It's not like a we little man, all right? No, it's a we, like in we, us, all of us. What James is saying to the church and saying to us is, look, if you really want to know the love of God, if you really want to express the love of God, quit talking about your emotions, quit talking about your good wishes, quit talking about the things that are esoteric in your life. No, listen, if you really want to know the love of God, the love of God is going to move you out of your self-centeredness into a community life. So it's no longer just about you. It's no longer just about me. It's about we. It's a we life, so that when I'm living my life, I'm trying to be considerate of others. When I'm living my life, I'm trying to take into consideration how that might impact somebody else. I'm not just here to get mine and mine alone. And quite honestly, in the world we're living in right now, I don't think there's a greater message to start with. 
We've got people who are arguing and fighting and divisive over whether or not their rights are being violated, when the reality is there are people dying all around us. And we're being called to move from a self-centered worldview to a global worldview, to move from something that's all about me and mine and what I deserve, work hard for it, get mine, to a life where I value other people and I value their life. And that's exactly what James is telling the early church. Look, God has always had a people and the people have not all looked like us and talked like us and been like us. No, no, the people of God are in every nation and in every tribe and in every language. And they're all different. So don't expect them to all look alike, but expect them to all love the same way. Because you see, the love of God moves us. And then, and then James takes it a step further. He actually talks about the Old Testament prophets. Because you see, that's who these Pharisees who had gone around and told all the Gentiles they had to become Jewish before they could be Christian, that's what they had been doing. They'd been quoting the Old Testament. And so what James does is he takes and says, oh, here, let me, let me, quote, let me quote the prophets for you. In fact, let me pick one for you that you might not have listened to lately. Let's go to Amos. Let's go to Amos chapter 9. And let's, let's go to verse 11 and 12. Look, look at what he says when he goes there. It's with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of humanity may seek the Lord and all of the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. What James is saying is, look, when it moves from me to we, this is the design of God. What God is doing is God has people that don't look like us. They don't act like us. And what we're called to do, what we're called to do is to not just say, oh, I love you. Oh, no, we're called to live in a way that includes those people who are different than we are, even when we disagree with them, even when we don't share the same understanding of the world, the same, same perspective. What we're called to do is to, to let the love of God move us from rejection of other people because they're different to acceptance of other people, to acceptance of people regardless of where they're from, regardless of how they talk, regardless of what their economic status is. The love of God moves us from rejection of others to acceptance of others. But I, I, I need I need to clarify something for you. See, it, it's possible. I don't, we live in a world where people don't think this is possible. But it's possible to accept somebody without agreeing with them. It, it really is. Just because somebody disagrees with you doesn't mean that you have to reject them. Now, sometimes, sometimes their attitude rejects you. But, but you have to find a way, even those who disagree with you vehemently, even those who, as the Scriptures would say, who would persecute you, we're, we're called to accept them. Now, acceptance doesn't mean affirming them. It doesn't mean saying, oh, look, you're wonderful, because they may not be wonderful. They may, they may be harming themselves and harming others. They may be so caught up in their rebellion that, that everything in their life is destructive. And so, 
Accepting someone doesn't mean, oh, I affirm that you're doing it the right way. No, it means I accept you even when you mess it up. I accept you even when you have just totally wrecked your life. I'm still going to love you. And in the church today, we've got to figure out how to do that. Because there are so many different people from so many different perspectives. And we've got to figure out how do we accept, how, how do we let the love of God move us from rejecting someone because they're different to accepting them because they are also a child of God, but then saying to them, we accept you even when you're in rebellion, even when you're in disobedience, even when you are away from God. I, I, I've heard the joke for years about preachers that, you know, Sunday mornings is three points in a poem, Okay. And uh, so I quit selling poems years ago. I quit, quit doing that just because I didn't like that joke, right? But you know, what I, you know what I've figured out? There was a poem that actually changed my life a few years ago. It's written by a guy named Edwin Markham. And it's a simple little poem. Maybe you've heard it. If you haven't, I, I would suggest that it might change your life too. It, it's just four lines. He drew a circle that shut me out, heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that took him in. Even, even when someone's in rebellion, even when someone's in disobedience, even when someone is, is kicking against everything that's being taught to them, there is still a way to love them, still a way to accept them without affirming their disbelief, without affirming their rebellious nature. It's the way of we, not me. It's the way of accepting people. I love the fact that James is the one doing all of this because in the Scriptures, if you can connect the dots throughout the New Testament, if you can read enough of it to understand it, if you can put enough of it into your life to let it settle into your spirit, you begin to see some things. See, this is, this is really important that James is the one who's saying this. He's quoting Amos. Because what James is doing is, is, James, is James is setting out the power of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. He's Jesus' brother. But, but he's also talking about, about how you do this in such a way that, that you don't give up your own moral code. You don't give up your own moral ethic. James was known, historians have recorded, he was known for his fasting and his prayer and his amazing ability to pray for people. And, and James was known for following all the rules and all the right way to live. And yet he does it with a spirit of love because he figured out that when somebody else shoves you away, when somebody else says, I don't care about you, you can care about them in such a way that the love of God makes a we out of a me and begins to build a relationship so that, so that at some point in time, you both discover just how much God loves you. You see, that's why after he quotes Amos, he begins to talk about what he would recommend now for these who are different. When it's a we and we're accepting, then, then there's some action that has to take place. Look at what he says. Therefore, my judgment 
is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Now, for years, I, I, I read that passage and thought, oh, great. He's just going to make them follow the, the, uh, the God-fearer's uh, dietary codes and stay sexually pure. And, and it's just, you know, a little list of rules. But can I tell you, I've spent the last few weeks looking at that list of rules. And there's some deep, deep meaning in those list of rules. In fact, these are the things that, that the church said to the Gentiles are essential. It's essential to have grace. It's essential to have love. And it's essential to do these four things. And so for the next four weeks, every Sunday when you come in here, we're going to pick one of these. And we're going to go through them. We're going we're gonna to look at them and see what is the meaning behind them. Some of them are pretty clear. Others of them, not so much. And so we're going to take the next few Sundays, because here's what I know. We're coming out of a global pandemic. Yeah, I know we're still in it, okay? I know that we're not all vaccinated yet. I know the herd mentality hasn't. Have you, has anyone else been offended by being told we should be a herd mentality? I, I just, I'm not, it's just a little aside for me. I'm just like, okay, I mean, I'm not from Marshall University and a part of the thundering herd or anything like that. But, but I, I just, you know, I'm a little bit like, really? A herd mentality? But the fact is, it's still, even with the things that are making progress, there's still, there's still some stuff we've got to deal with. And so I think we've got to know what's essential coming out of it. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to do that because here's what happens. When God's love moves us from a me to a we, and God's love moves us to a life that is, that is based on acceptance rather than rejection, and an acceptance that, that can accept someone even when they're rejecting you, even when they are living in disobedience, then, then we have to understand that kind of love. That kind of love is the love of God that moves us from emotions to actions. And the actions can't be insincere. The actions can't be, can't be things that just, you know, well, that's the right thing to do, so do it. No, no, they have to grow out of who we are. And that's why it's so important that it's James doing this. That's why if you connect these dots, here's James who, who was, you know, not even believing his brother Jesus was really the Messiah, to now he's James, the leader of the church, and he writes a letter that's included in your New Testament. That letter called James in your New Testament, it's written by this same guy. And it's the same guy who writes things like in James chapter 2, verse 17, things that for years I would read and think, man, that's hard. He would say things like this. So you say you have faith, and then fine. I'll show you my faith by the way that I live my life. Because you talk about your faith, but then you tell your brother and sister who's cold or hungry, go your way in faith, and you don't do anything for them. Because you see, without, without works, faith is dead. And without faith, works are dead. This same guy, if you connect the dots from the Jerusalem council to the letter that's there, all the way back to his living with Jesus as a sibling growing up, now suddenly we have an indication of what can happen in a life that's been moved by the love of God to a place of we rather than me, to a place of acceptance rather than rejection, to a place where love is about actions that grow out of a commitment from God rather than your emotions. Because if it's just about your emotions, you don't necessarily feel like doing good stuff all the time. 
Now, for those of you who are going, oh, pastor, every day I feel like doing wonderful stuff. You just lied. And for those of you on campus, you lied in God's house, all right? And for those of you online, you lied and God knows what house you're in. Because the fact of the matter is, no human being gets up every morning and goes, oh, God, look, I feel wonderful. I mean, even manics go into a depression. But what I'm telling you is that James, James, who had watched Jesus, his older brother, sacrifice his life for humanity, die on a cross, be resurrected on the third day, spend 40 days with his disciples and his family, opening their minds to the Scriptures. James is now sitting here looking at a bunch of people who are legalist and, and pharisaical and saying, hey, look, you, you got to know the love of God I saw in my brother. It's not the kind of love you're living out. It's not just about your emotions. It's about how you live. And then because he knows that they're all worried about whether or not these Gentiles are actually going to do it right as followers of Jesus, and they, well, are they going to be biblical? Are they going to adhere to the Torah and the Pentateuch and the Old Testament? Are they going to include all of that? Are they going to follow the, the laws of Moses? He adds this wonderful thing, this amazing insight. It's just in one sentence. Look at it. He says, from ancient generations... Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. What he's saying is, hey, legalist, don't worry about it. See, it's, it's going to be okay. The Word of God doesn't depend upon you. The Word of God doesn't depend upon your pro proclamation of it. No, the Word of God is there. You should proclaim it. It's being read all over the world. See, when you get into a narrow, me-centered mindset, when you, when you get into a place where love is all about your emotions and how you feel, when, when you get into a place where you reject anybody who's different from you, you're not following the love of God that James saw in his brother Jesus and that James is now suggesting to the church. What he's saying is the more you see the love of God at work, the more he changes you from a me life to a we life, from rejection to acceptance of others, when, when, when he changes you from just somebody who has emotions about love to somebody who acts out of your love, then suddenly he's going to move you slowly, gradually, from isolation to engagement as a witness to the entire world. He's going to move you from a person who's only worried about your own spiritual growth and your own family, and I got mine, and so what about you, to a person who, who sees the world the way Jesus does, to a person who, who cares about others the way Jesus does. Because the love of God always moves us into the place where, where we can be His love. After first service this morning, I, uh, I stood out in the connecting place, and I saw a reminder of that love for me. I saw Bobby and Jenny Meisel, who are career missionaries in Cote d'Ivoire, the Ivory Coast, along with their two kids, Moore and Reese. They're here on furlough now, 
staying in one of our guest houses and worshiping with us. And I, and I saw Mike and Heather Webb and their daughter Maddie, who are currently the directors, co-directors of Children of Promise, a child sponsorship organization. In fact, Mike's running one of the cameras in this service. But I, I saw Bobby and Heather and Maddie having a conversation, and it flashed in my mind that the first time I ever saw those people in the same setting was a few years ago in Yamasucro, Cote d'Ivoire, at the home of our staff missionaries, Larry and Leanne Sellers. And what blew me away was that, that I've got these friends, I've got these people I know who, whose world has been so, so changed that they would give their life to sharing the love of Jesus with people no matter where they're from. And I thought to myself, I wish we could all be there. That's my prayer for you. My prayer for you this morning, all of you, online, on campus, later on, on demand, is that together with the Spirit of God, you could discover exactly what love has to do with it. Because love has everything to do with it. Love is more than a secondhand emotion. Love is more than some sexual expression. Love is more than just being good to your neighbor. No, love is, love is being so devoted to God that you allow Him to change you. And you don't even have to live in the house with the Son of God like James did. Can you imagine being the younger brother to the perfect Messiah? I mean, come on. He probably never got in trouble. Jesus, I mean, Jesus always did his chores. He always made his bed. No, he didn't. He was 100% human just like he was 100% divine. I got in trouble for that one time preaching in a place I won't mention. Someone came up to me after and said, You mean to tell me my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ cried and wept? I said, Have you not read the book? He cried so much at Gethsemane that, that great drops of blood came out of him. He looked at Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus in a tomb, and he was so moved by their grief that he wept. The humanity of Jesus does not deny the divinity of Jesus, and the divinity of Jesus does not keep him from understanding the pain of humanity, and that's the love of God for us, for you for me, for the world. So my prayer for you this morning is that you'll be able to say to him, here I am. Show me how to love. Here I am. Help me to love people the way you did.